Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hey, hi, hello, and welcome to episode 18. Today we're talking about Heaven's Gate, which is a cult that I really thought I already had a pretty good idea about, but as I started my research, I realized there was so much more to this case. One of the really bizarre and interesting things about this cult was that they recorded literally everything. There are hours and hours of these videos of their teachings and their beliefs. They're pretty unsettling. Um, They show a lot of clips in the documentaries that I watched and it's just, um, it's very strange. (laughs) We'll get into it. One of the weirdest things for me though is how one of the cult leaders, Marshall Applewhite, basically never blinks. Like, I watched hours of this documentary, right? And they show all of these clips and I swear he blinked like twice. It's just really upsetting. Um, he speaks directly into the camera with his eyes as wide as they'll go to tell you the important thing he has to tell you. It's odd. And that's like minor compared to the rest of the craziness of this case. Let's just, let's get into it. Obviously we can't have a cult without some kooky cult leaders masterminding the whole thing. So let's talk about Bonnie Lou Nettles and Marshall Applewhite. Marshall Applewhite was described over and over again as charming, persuasive, and even magnetic. He was a performer and was very talented on stage. It was also mentioned that he would have an audience's full attention when he performed anything, which is something that would obviously really help him out later in his culty endeavors. Marshall got a degree in philosophy and then enrolled in the Union Presbyterian Seminary to study to become a minister. Marshall's dad was a very well-known and well-respected minister, and from a young age, Marshall wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps. That didn't last long, though, and he ended up leaving the school to pursue a music career. He married a woman named Anne Pierce, and they had two children together, and in 1951, Marshall was drafted into the Army, where he served in Austria and New Mexico. He left the military in 1956 and moved with his family to Colorado, where he got a degree in music, focusing on musical theater. Clearly, this man was a performer. He loved being on stage. He loved that music style. He loved being in musicals. He loved everything to do with music and performing. That mixed with his religious background will play into later events, as I'm sure you're already gathering. Marshall moved his family again, this time to Alabama, where he was a musical theater professor there. In a surprising turn of events, Marshall ended up losing his job because he was having an affair with a male student. Marshall had grown up in an extremely religious household, and this was the 60s, so Marshall really struggled with his sexuality. He and his wife separated in 1965 after she found out about the affair. Everything I've read and listened to has mentioned that Marshall really resented his own sexuality, and in my opinion, it was mainly because of his dad's reaction. He desperately craved his dad's approval. That mixed with his religious views left him feeling very frustrated with his own sexuality. Marshall moved again to Houston, Texas, and worked as a college professor there and sang in the Houston Grand Opera. While he was in Houston, he was openly gay for a short time, but he was also trying to have a relationship with a woman, and again, just my opinion, he was trying to force something to work with a woman because he was obviously ashamed of his sexuality. It comes up a lot in this case. Just my opinion, don't yell at me. Uh, This relationship obviously did not work out because he doesn't like women, which is fine. Uh, He eventually resigned from his position at the University of St. Thomas in 1970, citing depression and other emotional problems as his reason for leaving. Um, It's speculated that he also had another relationship with a male student at this school, and that was why he left. After the whole opera singing music professor thing didn't work out, Marshall moved again to New Mexico and opened up a deli. Uh, People really liked the deli and really liked Marshall, but he ended up closing it down and moving back to Texas, and around the same time his dad passed away, adding to Marshall's emotional turmoil. This was when he met a nurse named Betty Lou Nettles. It's kind of back and forth which story is true on how they met. According to a lot of people, Marshall suffered some kind of mental breakdown and needed to be hospitalized, but according to Marshall himself, he said he met Bonnie just by chance when he was visiting a friend at the hospital. Either way, what Bonnie told Marshall was pretty nutty, so whether he was there to get mental help or not, it probably wasn't super helpful for his nurse to be like, yo, I've had a vision that you're actually Jesus, the Jesus Christ. Just my opinion, not super helpful in a mental hospital. Um, Okay, let me explain. In 1972, Marshall and Bonnie met at a time in their lives where they both had everything kind of up in the air. They felt like they were yelling at the universe for some sort of sign or guidance of what to do next, 
Bonnie's marriage had hit a rough patch because her husband was like, you're creepy, because Bonnie had been raised as a Baptist, and she was very well educated in the Bible. She married a businessman named Joseph Nettles. They had four children together, and Bonnie worked as an RN, and for a long time, everything was normal, everything was great. Eventually, Bonnie turned to some different religious views, and she was interesting, interested in studying astrology, which is totally fine. The occult, still okay. Um, she liked to visit fortune tellers and regularly held seances. Seances make me kind of nervous, but listen, get yours, okay? Um, the part that makes me go, oof, there's the step that's too far, was that Bonnie believed a 19th century monk named Brother Francis was speaking to her and giving her instructions. So that's where I'm like, skirt, one too far, one too many, okay? Everything else was fine, but that was too far. It was also the 60s, and Bonnie's husband was like this probably really boring businessman. I'm making this up. He probably was great. But everything else, he was like, you freak me out, and you're like, think you're a witch or something. So they had a rough time, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so anyways, they separated, and Bonnie's oldest daughter, Terry, who was 19 at the time, stayed really close with her mom, while her other three children moved in with their dad, and I don't think she really had any kind of a relationship with her other three kids. Terry is in one of the documentaries that I watched, and she said that she and her mom were always very, very close. They loved watching musicals together, they read sci-fi books and things like that, which sounds awesome. Uh, Terry said that they would sit outside together under the stars and imagine a UFO coming to take them off this planet so they could go somewhere new. Terry said she was fine with her mom getting into the astrology stuff and this new, um, more new age kind of religious view. When Marshall and Bonnie started this journey together, though, Terry was very skeptical and extremely concerned. Rightly so. Um, so Marshall was at the hospital, for whatever reason, and Bonnie was immediately fascinated with him. She told him that she'd had visions or prophecies, that he was essentially Jesus Christ and it was his job to gather people to leave the planet, and that the spirit of God was inside of her body. So they were like bonded for life, soulmates kind of thing. Um, anyways, both of their crazy light bulbs turned on and he was like, yes, this makes total sense. They believed that they had known each other in past lives. Cult leaders always say that, don't they? And they knew that they were soulmates, not in a sexual way, but like best friend soulmates. Um, from the beginning, Bonnie was kind of the mastermind behind all of this. She was the one who was cooking up all these ideas of another life and extraterrestrials, etc. We'll get into it. And Marshall acted as the mouthpiece because, remember, he was a performer. And he could spew all kinds of BS. And people would eat it out of the palm of his hand. They loved it. So Marshall and Bonnie concluded that they were actually extraterrestrials who had been sent to this planet to gather a select few to travel with them to what they called the next level, which is essentially heaven. They dropped everything. They cut off their relationship with everyone in their lives, including their kids, to go and take this journey recruiting people to join their group. They road tripped all over the West Coast, taking odd jobs to make money for food and gas. Um, they tried to open a bookstore that a bookstore that they called the Christian Arts Center. It failed, probably because it was called the Christian Arts Center and they didn't sell any books about Christianity. Anyway, eventually, Marshall was arrested because they got a rental car and then they just never returned it, so they just stole a car. And then there was also another incident where they convinced one of their followers that everything, or that everyone should just be sharing money. And eventually this woman's um, husband came and was like, pull your head out and come home, please. And she realized it was ridiculous to abandon her family for these people she doesn't know. So when she went home, her husband turned Marshall in for credit card fraud. Good job. So Marshall ended up sitting in jail for six months, and he just had all these time to make up these, I mean, have these very legit prophecies, and was like, yep, UFOs are real. In fact, Jesus was an alien, and now his spirit lives inside me, and I'm meant to take humans with me to the higher level. Personally, I think it was d the delusions of a bored man in a jail cell, and he could have just, like, written a cool sci-fi book, but okay, it's fine. That's what he wanted to believe. Beliefs are fine. Bonnie was super excited that Marshall was taking on his role as the mouthpiece of their teachings, so she was all in, he was all in, they were doing great. Eventually, in 1973, they had a big meeting to talk to potential recruits. And this was around the time that everyone was really getting into sci-fi and UFOs, and people were looking for something other than Christianity, so the New Age religious movement was in full swing. Um, from what I understand, New Age religion is kind of described as more spirituality and connecting with the universe and a higher power outside of the biblical sense of religion, which is great. Um, it's more 
considered like a counterculture and probably described as like hippie spirituality, which I'm all for. Do your thing. Love it. So in the midst of all this, Marshall and Bonnie's beliefs spoke to a lot of people who were looking for something more. For the people who felt like they didn't know what they wanted or where they were supposed to be. And according to Marshall, he said, quote, it's common for the person going through the awakening for his or her life to begin to fall apart, end quote. And this awakening he's referring to is basically finding the group, and in my opinion, that's a really good way to prey on people when they're in a vulnerable place in their lives. When you go through traumatic changes and you're kind of yelling to the universe, like, what are you doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And then you find something that clicks for you. He's basically saying that, like, you're so special and that's why things are so hard for you because you're so special. You're actually going to become an alien, so come with us, which is kind of yuck. Like, having a place to be, having a group of people who get you is so important. Like, community is so important. But these people were preying on people who were very vulnerable and very um, naive to their teachings, which is how cults end up becoming cults. Anyways, moving on. So, 1973. After being on the road for a year, they have this big meeting in Oregon, and to get people to show up to this meeting, they put up flyers, and these flyers said UFOs, why they are here, who they will come for, uh, when they will leave. Not a discussion of UFO sightings or phenomena. Two individuals say that they were sent from the level above human and will return to that level in a spaceship within the next few months. This man and woman will discuss how the transition from the human level to the next level is accomplished and when this may be done. This is not a religious or philosophical organization recruiting membership. Um, yes, it is. Uh, however, the information has already prompted a number of individuals to devote their total energy to the transitional process. If you have ever entertained the idea that there might be a real physical level in the space beyond the Earth's confines, you'll want to attend this meeting. Very flourishy and very self-important, in my opinion. But a ton of people loved it. A ton of people showed up to this meeting and were like, that makes total sense. Um, Marshall said to them, quote, we have been given information on how to go from the human kingdom to the kingdom into the kingdom. Wait, what? Rewind. We have been given the information on how to go from the human kingdom to the kingdom of heaven, and we want to share it with you. Sorry, I read the same line twice. Do you do that? Um, so people were enthralled with these ideas because they did what lots of cults do. They made these people feel insanely important. If you were at this meeting, it meant that you were a chosen one, that you were meant to receive this message, that you were better than other people who didn't hear the message, etc. They also explained that they had received revelation. Always a red flag when you hear someone say that phrase in these stories. They were the two witnesses mentioned in the book of Revelation. And they said that someday they would have to be martyred and then they'd rise from the dead three days later because the spirit of God would bring them back and then they would lead their followers to the next level. They called this, quote, the demonstration and said that it would initiate the end of the world. They also said that in the Bible, when the book of Revelations talks about people ascending into heaven on a cloud, this was actually talking about a flying saucer, but because people didn't know in the Bible what a UFO was, they just said it was a cloud, but it's a UFO, don't worry. <laughs> just change the story to fit your own narrative, it's fine. Uh, they called this event the demonstration and said it would be part of the end of the world, like I said, just drama. Once they'd had this revelation that they were actually these two mentioned in the Bible, same, I totally have had that happen to me, um, they started calling themselves the two. I'm sorry, I'm not making fun of it. I'm not making fun of anyone. They started calling themselves the two. And that's what their new followers started calling them as well. Then for a while they went by Bo and Peep, as in they were herding their flock of sheep. And then they landed on the nicknames that they were the most commonly known as, Doe and T. They chose these nicknames because Bonnie and Marshall were both super into musicals, and they chose nicknames from the song Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music. They should have just gone and joined an improv troupe and sang songs and left everyone else alone. But here we are. Because they're both obviously very creative people. They're both great performers. Like, just go do a sci-fi thing and, and don't tell people that you're Jesus. It's fine. So... The people they taught in Oregon were like, hell yes, this makes total sense, I love it, and Bonnie and Marshall told them that they could come and join them with one, like, little tiny, not a big deal commitment. They just had to sell all their possessions and abandon any and all human relationships they had. They could bring one change of clothes, and that was it. And a group of about 20 people were like, sounds great, abandon their entire lives the next day. 
This had such a big impact on Oregon that there were multiple newspaper articles published about a UFO cult swooping in and suddenly 20 people were just gone. Some of these people were between like 19 and 20, young enough that they didn't have much to leave behind, but there were multiple people who had young kids who just up and left because they were like, I've been called by a higher power, I have to go, good luck. And they never spoke to their families again, which is really sad. Uh, I highly recommend that you watch the HBO docuseries about this because Bonnie's daughter and a few of the other people whose parents just kind of ditched out on life to go follow Bonnie and Marshall um, talk about that experience and how confusing and heartbreaking it was to go through as a kid. And even as grown adults, it's literally been decades, they still got very emotional telling the stories of the day their parents left. And of course, I mean, I say this every time in the documentary, I cried because they cry. And it's just, it's something that I feel like the people who left to go join the cult, I mean group, were like, this is great, this is such a good opportunity for me, and I don't care what I have to sacrifice, and they just left everything behind and never thought about it again. Meanwhile, their poor kids are traumatized and into adulthood, are heartbroken that they didn't have a relationship with their parents because of Bonnie and Marshall. So, anyways, that's just my take on it. Moving on. Um, eventually, it got to a point where people's families were extremely worried about them, and they were following every lead they could find to figure out where this group was going because they kept moving. And every time they'd find out where they were, Marshall and Bonnie would move them again. And since it was the 70s, it's not like anyone could just text and be like, hey, they're over here. Um, they had to get police involved. They had to go try to find them. And by the time they would get there, the cult would move and change their name. Also, it didn't help that the police were like, they're adults. If they want to go leave and go be with this group, they can do that. Um, but this group of parents basically put together an anti-cult and kept in contact with any leads and they would all just talk to each other constantly. So for a while, the group was just traveling around the country, camping out wherever they ended up. Bonnie and Marshall basically told the group that it was their job to go and spread the word and gain more followers and somehow they did. There was one point where there were over 100 followers just wandering around following these people and there was no real rhyme or reason to what they were doing or why they were doing it. There was no plan. They were just like you have to go tell everyone and you have to get them to come follow us. And eventually people started trickling off because they were like, you said there'd be UFOs, there's no, no UFOs, okay, bye. <laughs> and would eventually go home. But there were a lot of people who stayed, who stuck with it, and were like, okay, but you guys need to tell us what you want us to be doing. So then Bonnie and Marshall were like, you're right. And they decided to put together some rules and plans. And let's, let's talk about those rules and plans. So it took years for things to get to the point where all of these rules were put into place, but I'll just give you the basic rundown. First of all, big rule number one, no sex. Never ever, if you were a couple who joined this group, too bad you're not a couple anymore. Marshall said that sex was just the desire of the human body and that in the next level, the kingdom of heaven, they wouldn't even want to have sex because their bodies would be sexless, whatever. Procreation, not recreation. And if you're not procreating, then you just don't need to have sex, right? Um, which, uh, totally all for it. If you want to identify as non-binary, that is your personal decision. You can't force people to do it or believe it. Like, you can't force anybody to not be a gender or to choose a gender. But Marshall was like, nope, we don't care. No one has genders. Um, also, personally, just my opinion. Don't yell at me. I feel like Marshall was so ashamed of, ashamed of his own sexuality that he wanted everyone just to not have any attraction to anyone so that he didn't have to deal with it on his own. And he clearly had resentments toward his own sexuality, including the fact that there was a man who was one of the first followers to join the group, whose name was Dick Jocelyn, who was like all in. He believed every bit of Marshall's teachings. He wanted to help him grow this group. But eventually, over time, Marshall asked him to leave because he was becoming attracted to him. And rather than just dealing with his sexual issues and, like, being with this guy who he obviously likes, Marshall asked this man to leave because he was so afraid of his own sexuality. It's my opinion. Just my opinion. He basically said to him, I'm so sorry, it's very unfortunate, but my vehicle, which is what they called their bodies, my vehicle has become attracted to your vehicle. It's just, mm, that bothers me. He should have just been with him and just, like, gone and not been a cult leader, but here we are. So, to help each other keep these emotions in check... Everyone in the group was assigned a check partner. So two people would be paired up, either a man and a woman, or two women, or two men, depending on your sexuality, and the point was that you would be stuck with this person normally that you'd be attracted to, and you had to force yourself to get so used to each other that you'd have absolutely no sexual feelings. You were together 
all the time. You were never alone. Your check partner did everything with their, with you and they were there to help you follow all of the rules exactly. Um, another one of the rules, they were only allowed to watch certain TV shows and movies and read specific books that were mainly sci-fi stuff, which like, fine, that's totally fine. There are worse things, okay? Um, to further this thing where they didn't have gender identities, everyone in the group had to shave their facial hair and wear their hair short, like, I mean, and it's not like they looked good, okay? These were like chopped off pixie cuts that they gave each other and like cropped really short haircuts. They all dressed in very similar clothing that covered all of their skin. Shirts buttoned all the way to the neck, long pants, etc., no matter where they lived or how hot it was. Marshall also made them have new names. Again, this was separating themselves from other human beings and to disassociate them from any human connections. Marshall and Bonnie's whole thing was that their life before the cult didn't matter and didn't exist. They said that their families were not really their families and that their kids were not really their kids. They were just these bodies that just produced these kids and it actually meant nothing, which is so rude. <laughs> um, and then they said that after this life, it wouldn't matter who was related to who anyways, so they might as well just forget about them, which is awful and not helpful to the children that these people brought into the world. Anyways, moving on. So their new names. These names had to be very, very specific. The first half of the name had to be three consonants. So for example, if my name is Taylor, it would be like T-Y-L their Ys were not considered vowels. And then the last part of their name was like the cult's family name, which was Odie, O-D-Y. So if if your name was Taylor and you just did T-Y-L, it would be Tylody. Um, there were members in this group who were like Liv Odie, Sir Odie, etc. Very intense. This is how cults get people stuck because they make themselves different than everyone else and convince the followers that they are part of something different and more important. Um, it's also very dehumanizing to take away someone's entire identity, their names, their hobbies, their likes, their dislikes, their genders. That's how cult leaders brainwash people into believing ridiculous, out-of-control things. Um, so I'm going to read to you their list that they called the 17 Steps. And these were things that you were meant to ask yourself constantly. Marshall also said that comparing your own faithfulness, faithfulness, <laughs> it's a very weird way to pronounce that, faithfulness with the people who are following the rules to a T would help you do better yourself. So if you were questioning and you were like, um, is this completely nuts? Why am I here? You were supposed to look at the members who were the most faithful and all in and be more like them instead of trusting your own instincts that this was not right. Okay, here's the rules that came from heavensgate.com. They still have a website. It's up. It's wild. So number one, can you follow instructions without adding your own interpretation? No. <laughs> Two, can you deliver instructions as you receive them or do they change according to your computer? Your computer is your brain. According to them, they call their brain a computer. Do you participate in inconsiderate conversation, polluting the ears of others while you and your partner work things out? Number four, are you physically clumsy, breaking things because you handle them too harshly or carelessly? Number five, do you halfway complete a task because of your poor standard of what is thorough? Number six, do you put off tasks, procrastinate? Yes, I do. Number seven, are your patterns of cleanliness, sensitivity, gentleness, etc., consistent, or are they good only when spotlighted? Number eight, uh, do you use more of something than is adequate? For example, excessively high cooking flame, more toothpaste than necessary, etc. Are you using too much toothpaste? Get out. Number nine. Do you go from one extreme to another as from overreacting to underreacting, etc.? Yes, I do. <laughs> Number 10. Are you sensitive when approaching another individual about something you want to discuss? Do you permit that individual the choice to continue what he is doing or do you force him to drop it in order to give attention to you? Do you stop and check or do you assume that what is on your mind is more important than what is on theirs? Know the difference between the relationship of your teachers and your fellow classmates in this regard. That was like six questions in one, but okay. Number 11. Do you needlessly ask a question when the answer is obvious or a moan of silent observation would quickly reveal the answer? You know that rule about no stupid questions? Marshall did not believe in that. Number 12. Are you pushy, aggressive, interfering, or demanding in any way? Yes, 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 and yes. Number 13. This is a long list. Number 13. Has familiarity caused you to become so relaxed with your partners or others that your actions or words don't hold enough restraint? 
Number 14, are you gentle, simple, cautious, and thoughtfully restrained in all your steps and other physical actions or words? Number 15, have you outgrown defensiveness and its flip side, martyrdom, which is quite hilarious for Marshall to be bringing up martyrdom when he every day is like, and I'm gonna have to die. Anyways, number 16, can you understand and review in your mind all the ways in which members of the next level are sensitive? If you can, you have no excuse for not working on improving these areas at all times. Number 17, when your teachers, which means Bonnie and Marshall, when your teachers have asked someone to do a task and it relates to you, do you treat that task and its deliverers with as much respect as you would if it came directly from your teachers? Um, And that's the 17 rules, the 17 steps. No big deal, right? (laughs) Another thing that they did to cut off everyone from the real world was to change words in basic human language that we all use so that you wouldn't have automatic automatic reminders of your life before the group. For example, your bodies are now called vehicles. Like, your body is not your body, it's just a vehicle that you are driving around on this planet. Um, Your brain is a computer, etc. They call their house, like, the ship or the craft or something like that. So things that would not remind you of any of your life before being in this group. Every single thing that they did down to the tiniest thing was controlled and had to be done the exact way all the time. Um, Remember that thing about do you use excessive toothpaste? One of the examples that a former member gave in the HBO docuseries is that they would take turns cooking breakfast and they had to make the pancake batter exactly right with the exact ingredients. The pancakes had to be the exact same size. Everyone got the exact same amount down to the syrup you got. Which, every time I think about this part, I really crave syrup and pancakes. Anyways, moving on. Um, Nothing was private. You had no identity. You had no likes or dislikes. You were basically just a blob doing whatever Marshall and Bonnie told you to do. Horrifying. Okay, so we've talked about the control over everyone's earthly vehicles, aka bodies. Let's talk about the uh, UFO, alien, next level, higher heaven stuff. First of all, One of the biggest things in the beginning of the cult was the belief that they were all going to physically, literally, going to get into a spaceship in their human vehicles. They also said that if you had a powerful enough telescope, you could literally see heaven from Earth. Um, Dick Jocelyn, that I mentioned earlier, was speaking to a group of recruits early on, and he said, quote, You cannot die and achieve the level we are talking about. You cannot die and get to heaven. This level we are speaking about is only attained while you are alive and physically healthy in a way that you've never been before. Um, According to Marshall, your human body just had to overcome this stupid, lame human level of activity on Earth, and then a chemical change would take place, and you go through a metamorphosis exactly like a caterpillar does. And he said that once you go through this chemical change, you become an angelic space alien. His exact words were, quote, very attractive extraterrestrials. Um, Hey, Siri, play E.T. by Katy Perry. (laughs) Anyways. Oh, Siri actually popped up. No, don't actually play it. Go away. Okay. Oh, I didn't think she was actually going to speak to me. Moving on. Anyways, when you see the artwork that they made um, showing these aliens, they're basically like small and gray. And according to Marshall, they will have two eyes, some remnant of a nose, remnant of ears, and they'll have a voice box, but they won't need to use it um, because they can speak to each other in their minds super dope. One of the ways that um, they would practice for this was learning to all get on the same frequency, because you got to be able to talk to each other in your minds, right? To do that, Marshall would hit a tuning fork, and then they would hold it onto their foreheads, which sounds awful, and it makes my teeth hurt to think about doing that, Um, but whatever, it's fine. They said that this would help them tap into a higher frequency and to all become one as a group. At first, there was a lot of urgency around this UFO coming to take them off this planet. They acted like it was going to happen like in a couple of weeks. So everyone was getting really excited, really jazzed. They would camp out in the desert and there was always someone who had to be watching the sky in case the spaceship showed up. But for years, nothing happened, which is shocking. Um, Obviously, to live on this planet, planet Earth, in this human life, you have to have that pesky human money. So the group had a few different ways of doing that. At first, They camped out so they wouldn't have to pay for anywhere to live, and people would use their own money from their, quote, old lives to pay for food and supplies. Um, It was very much a what's yours is mine situation, 
And then one day, a young guy with a very rich daddy joined the group and they moved into a mansion and <laughs> paid for everything with this kid's trust fund. Can you imagine? As his parent, I would be so pissed. Anyways, from what I understand, they moved a few people in at a time into this house and only certain members were allowed to go outside so that no one would be suspicious that there were like 30 people living in each house in this neighborhood. As you can imagine, there was no privacy for anyone. They all followed the same schedule. They all spent their time preparing for their trip to Heaven's Gate. They were constantly reminded that this was their family. This was their priority. And anyone who told them otherwise just didn't know the truth and couldn't understand their mission. All the usual creepy cult leader stuff. Um, they did hours and hours of classes every day where Marshall would just talk at them about their mission, about what was going to happen in the next life, etc., um, they called this their classroom training program, and it was drilled into their heads that every single thing that happened to them in a day was a test. This human life was a test, and the goal was to be exactly perfect, and once you were perfect, you'd eventually graduate, just like you do in regular school, aka go to the next le level, the kingdom of heaven. Yikes. So, everyone is all in, following these insane rules, and they were under the impression that this journey was going to just happen anytime now. Um, meanwhile, while everyone had cut off their families and devoted themselves 100% to this group, pretending that they did not have children or spouses or parents or anyone who cared about them, Bonnie was still writing to her daughter and would occasionally talk to her on the phone. She even sent her money to help take care of the siblings that she abandoned for her special mission. And I can't remember exactly the way it was phrased, but it was something along the lines of Bonnie basically telling her daughter to like, work hard and have a better life than she had. So it's like, you did all of this, but behind closed doors, you're, like, telling your daughter that it's a bunch of BS. I don't know. I don't know. Something that no one expected happened in 1985. For almost 10 years, Marshall and Bonnie had been teaching them all about the UFOs and these attractive aliens they were going to turn into and all of the things. Um, remember, one of the biggest points was that they would never die. They would just do this caterpillar turning into a butterfly trick and off to heaven in a spaceship they would go. However, this belief was thrown into question when Bonnie was diagnosed with liver cancer. Um, apparently in 19, 1982, she had been having some issues with her eye. Finally, she went to a doctor that told her that she had cancer that was affecting her eyes. She had to have one of her eyes removed. The group never talked about it. She never said anything about it. They never brought it up and no one was allowed to ask questions. Bonnie didn't even tell Terry, her daughter, and a few years later in 1985, Bonnie got really sick again. She went to the doctor and was told that the cancer had spread to her liver, liver, sorry, had spread to her liver, and she was, it was terminal. So within three weeks, very, very quickly, things progressed, and Bonnie passed away. The entire group was completely shocked, and Marshall was devastated and completely lost. Poor Terry didn't even know that her mom was sick. She didn't tell her, and she actually made everyone in the group swear not to say anything and to never tell Terry, which is disgusting and awful and mean. Um, a few months after she passed away, a few of the group members decided that they needed to tell Terry. And at this time, uh, the group was living in Texas, only a few hours away from where Terry was living. She had no idea her mom had been this close because she hadn't heard from her. And one day, they just called her up and were like, oh, hey, Terry, what's up? And she knew very quickly, because none of these people had ever spoken to her before, she knew very quickly that something was going on because she hadn't heard from her mom. And so she finally was just like, what's up? What's going on? Why are you calling me? And Terry had to find out from these strangers that her mom passed away, and she was devastated. She was so angry. They didn't tell her sooner so that she could have been there, because she was only a few hours away. She could have been there to see her mom or talk to her or help her or do something. Um... So she was pissed, and I don't blame her. She also tried to talk to Marshall, um, but he refused to take her calls, and he wouldn't tell her anything. Eventually, he sent her a voice tape where he talked about Bonnie, and he said that he just felt so uncomfortable and so awkward that he didn't know how to handle the situation, and he didn't know how to talk to Terry, basically. And in the tape, he gets extremely emotional, and it's clear that he's very, very upset. He cared very deeply for Bonnie, which goes against everything they taught in this group. And after Bonnie passed away, Marshall really questioned everything they were doing. He felt directionless once again, because really, when it came down to it, Bonnie was the one with all the ideas. Bonnie was the one that came up with everything, and Marshall was just the mouthpiece for this group. So now that he was left on his own, he had to figure out 
what to do with all of his followers. So he did something very unexpected, and he sent all of the followers away. He was like, go home for two weeks and then come back. Every single member left and went and visited their families, their friends, checked in. Um, Some of these people hadn't heard from their loved ones in like 10 years, and there were about 40 members at that time. 39 came back. Only one person went to see their family and decided to stay. Everyone else came back. Um, These people had spent 10 years eating, sleeping, breathing Marshall and Bonnie and his teachings, and they were all completely convinced that this was what they were supposed to be doing, and they felt like this was the right thing, and that the UFOs were going to come take them off this planet because they were special, etc. So they all willingly went back. So now Marshall was in a hard spot because he had been telling these people that they couldn't make it to Heaven's Gate if they died. So he did what any logical person would, and he just sent them home telling them everything was a lie. Don't be silly, of course he didn't. He just changed the narrative to fit the current situation. Duh. So now he came up with a great explanation that it only, quote, looked to us like she died from cancer, but actually her next level consciousness burnt up her human body, end quote. Yikes. The group was like, Marshall, make it make sense. And he was like, okay, I will. And then he told the group, quote, it tested me, it tested the class, and we're all 10 feet taller because of it, end quote. Because remember, everything is a test in life that gets them one step closer to graduating. After Bonnie died, Marshall took the reins and just ran wild with them. A group that had once been centered around UFOs and sci-fi vibes and this kind of new age thing was suddenly this end of days biblical thing. The focus went from the message to the messenger, and Marshall was basically going on a power trip. Of course, he explained this away again by saying that Bonnie was talking to him from the next level and guiding their group. Again, red flag. Uh, Between 1991 and 1995, a lot happened in a very short amount of time. Marshall referred to this time as the, quote, second harvest, meaning that it was getting closer and closer to the time that they were going to go to the next level. He'd been saying this whole it's almost time thing, the earth is going to be recycled, and we have to get off this planet immediately for like 20 years, but okay. He also began casually floating the idea of suicide to the group. Little by little, it came up more and more, and to help people deal with the switchover from, don't worry, you'll never die, to, okay, you might have to die, he told them, quote, the mind you have as a human is aborted, and the soul is filled with the next level mind, and a new creature is born. He would ask them one by one in front of the entire group if they would be willing to die if necessary, and everyone at this point was so invested and in sync with him, I guess, that they all were like, absolutely whatever you say. Also, asking them in front of everybody really puts a lot of pressure on, because when all of your friends are saying yes, and you're like, what if I'm doubting this, then you feel like the loser. So, you know, it's just one of those manipulation techniques. Um, And to really nail down this commitment, Marshall married, (laughs) loosely used that term, married every member of the group. One by one, they went through this weird ceremony, and he gave each of them a gold wedding band, kissed them on the forehead, and sent them on their way. And now they're all married. (laughs) Like with any cult, you have your leader who is preaching all of his insanity, but obviously a leader is nothing without followers. And there were a lot of members of this group who so deeply believed in Marshall that they took what he was saying and took that even further. Um, They would escalate his ideas and want to go to the extreme in everything that they did. And Marshall was quick to tell the other members of the group to compare their faith with the most faithful because that keeps you there. So while a lot of people were trying to say that this wasn't a cult, it's still, like, kind of debated, I guess, if this was a cult or not. Because people technically could leave freely whenever they wanted to, but they didn't want to because they were brainwashed into thinking that they were staying because of their own free will. Because telling people, hey, follow the more faithful, don't question the teachings, It's gaslighting them into being like, well, I just must not be faithful enough. I'm not trying hard enough. I need to be as faithful as Livodi over there who's like all in. So they stay because leaving is a sign that you aren't special enough to be there. And these people had committed over a decade of their lives and they needed it to be true. Just observation and opinion. Moving on. Also, I'm sorry. I've lost my voice a little bit. So if that's why I sound weird, that's why. Just pretend I'm like... Sexy, sexy Scarlett Johansson or something with a weird voice. Anyways, moving on. So, speaking of going overboard, (laughs) one day, a new and horrifying idea was floated around the group. Marshall was so ashamed of his own sexuality, like we already talked about, we already knew this, 
He was trying to make everyone in the group be sexless and genderless and be ashamed of their sexuality. One of the things that was brought up in the HBO documentary was the topic of what they referred to as, quote, nocturnal emissions, aka wet dreams. Let's just call it what it is. If you had a wet dream and let's say, um, make a mess, you had to go and write your name, the date and the time onto this checklist where you had to check out these special specific towels to clean up with. Humiliating. So again, using humiliation to brainwash people into being ashamed of their own bodies, then some of the former members talked about how this made them feel horrible and humiliated when this happened. They felt like they were failing and that made them work even harder to prove their faith. Um, there, this was when uh, that scripture about if it offends you, if your eye offends you, pluck it out, got brought up. I think you know where this is going. Yikes. One of the members, Sirodi, was one of the most committed members. He was one of those people that I was talking about who really helped Marshall to escalate things, and he just one day was like, you guys, I have a great idea. Let's just get castrated. Again, yikes. Marshall hesitated at first, but then he was super on board with this idea and was like, it totally makes sense. Again, this was a choice. He didn't force anyone to do anything. But one of the former members, Sawyer, said that the group who wanted to do this were trying to prove how faithful they were, and basically he and, so Sawyer and Sorodi were basically fighting over who got to go first because they both wanted to prove their loyalty so badly that they were fighting over who was going to get the castration done first, which I just, totally, your choice, your choice, your body, your choice, okay? Autonomy is a thing. Um, shockingly, <laughs> no doctors in the area would perform this procedure on this random group of people, so they dropped the idea and everyone kept all their parts. Got you again, you guys. Of course they didn't. They just went to one of the members, who was a nurse in her human life before she joined the group, and asked her to do it. They knew that if they were ever questioned about this day, they'd probably get in trouble, so they came up with a plan, and they wrote the word Mexico on a poster, and put it on the door where the castrations would happen, so if anyone ever asked, they could say, oh, we went to Mexico to do it, and then it wouldn't be a lie. Except that it would, again. Yikes. Uh, one of the former members, uh, Sawyer, that I talked about, him and Sorodi were arguing about this. They ended up flipping a coin to decide who got to go first, and Sorodi quote-unquote, won. I don't know if I'd call that a win, but he got to go first. So, they went for it. And right out of the gate, something went wrong. Sorodi began bleeding profusely, and Marshall freaked out and said that he'd gone too far he wanted to take Sorodi to the hospital, and he even said that they needed to call the police, and he needed to turn himself in because this was getting out of control. But the other members of the group wouldn't let him, and they were like, this is a test. This is supposed to be happening. It's a test. And so then they called a priest, <laughs> like, because you know how priests have tons of experience with this kind of thing. Luckily, they eventually took Sorodi to the hospital, but two of the other members went and threw his testicles off a bridge into a river because they didn't want to get into trouble. So... That's, I mean, that's troubling to me. This experience deterred a few of the members from getting the procedure done elsewhere, but eventually they did find a doctor who was willing to do the castrations, and seven members in total, including Marshall, went through with getting the castrations done. Again, I've said it once, I'm going to say it 20 more times. Body autonomy is a thing. It is a right to do whatever you want. However, in this situation, I just don't know that it was necessarily what they actually wanted we can't get into the psychology of it because I'm not a psychologist, but I don't, it doesn't seem right. Okay, moving on. So things were moving right along with Marshall's new storyline, and according to him, the time of the graduation was coming very quickly. Again, he'd been saying that for 20 years, but this time he was serious. And he said that they would be leaving this planet before the turn of the century. In 1996, something happened that made it even easier for Marshall to convince the other members that it was almost time. In November of 1996, two people who were described as amateur astronomers saw a giant comet coming close to Earth. Alan Hale in New Mexico and Thomas Bopp in Arizona, who noticed this comet, um, and it was apparently, like, the farthest comet that amateur astronomers have ever discovered, which is really cool. They're like the armchair detectives of NASA. You know what I mean? Anyways, they saw this giant comet, and it was actually named after them, which I love that they did that. This comet was called the Hale-Bopp, and it was massive. Astronomers were shocked that this could be seen as brightly as it was, and as it got closer to the planet, it could be seen without a telescope, shining brightly in the sky for about 18 months. The amount of people talking about this 
Comet literally broke the newly popular internet. There were more than 1.2 million visitors to NASA's page about Hale-Bopp over a weekend, and everyone was talking about it. The page was, like, being shut down because everyone was trying to get in, and it was like a traffic jam. Um, and of course, with all of the new space things, come new conspiracies. Apparently, the Hale-Bopp comet was so impressive because of how bright it was, but also because it had this big giant tail that was unlike any comet that had been seen before. And this was a big part of what made these conspiracy theories come about. In the early 90s, a man named Art Bell started a radio show, and his show was like 100% the type of show that you and I would be listening to, okay? And, I mean, because you're a crime creep, just like me. It was all about conspiracies and things like cryptids, like Bigfoot, and UFOs. Uh, it was like the Mile Higher podcast, of, but in the 90s. I love it. If you've never listened to Mile Higher, do it. It's like my favorite podcast, one of my favorites. So this radio show starts, and he's getting these calls from people saying that there's a UFO flying behind Hillbop, and that's why there's this big, long comet tail. A man named Chuck Schremont from Houston, Texas, called the show and said that he was suspicious because there weren't many pictures from NASA of the comet, and he believed it was because the government and NASA were trying to hide something from the public. So he took a picture of the comet, and he said that he could definitely see something trailing behind it. One day after talking to Chuck, Art Bell got a call from a man named Courtney Brown, who was part of the Farsight Institute, claiming that he and his students also saw this object flying behind Hillbop. And this professor said the, op the object was approximately four times the size of the Earth, and it was headed straight toward us. Um, this is exactly the catalyst that Marshall needed to get things moving, and he told the group that he had actually been informed by Bonnie, again from the other side, that this UFO was the spaceship that they'd been waiting for, and that this was Bonnie coming to get them. Um, the group bought ridiculously expensive telescopes and looked up at the sky, and when they didn't see a UFO trailing Hale-Bopp, they took the telescope back to the store, and they were like, this thing is garbage, it doesn't work, because they couldn't see the UFO flying behind the Hale-Bopp. Eventually, it was discovered that this object flying behind Hale-Bopp was a hoax, but don't worry, Marshall had an answer for that, too. It's because the comet was the UFO. Here's my thing. Conspiracy theories are fine. They're interesting to talk about. It's good to ask questions. There's plenty of things that go hidden and unnoticed that we don't know about that are, you know, let's talk about them. It's fine, and that's great. But in this case, Marshall is just trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, and he just keeps being like, let's switch this and make it fit, and let's come up with this new and changing information and force things to fit. And people are allowed to believe whatever they want. If these people wanted to follow Marshall and do the whole matching outfits, different code names, I'm an alien thing, that's fine. It might seem weird to a lot of people, but there are plenty of groups that do weird things and love it, and that's fine. Let your freak flag fly. I love it. And technically, Heaven's Gate wasn't doing anything wrong in the beginning, but as it evolved, it became dangerous and very tragic. And I just wanted to really quickly say that as we move into the last part of this episode, I don't want anyone to think that I am making light or poking fun at the tragedy that happened to this group. If you are listening to this podcast, we probably have similar interests, and sometimes being interested in the dark and spooky and unexplained side of life, we learn to cope with our dark senses of humor. And not everyone gets that, but that's why you're a part of the Creed Squad, you little weirdo, because I get it. Um, but with that being said, I know that when we talked about Marshall saying he was a prophet and the Bible was talking about him or the crazy long list of weird rules, I make jokes or whatever. But as we get into the end of this episode, I want to make it very, very clear that I am never laughing or making jokes about these horrible deaths and the tragedies surrounding them. Okay? Okay? Moving on. In 1996, Marshall was really reaching the end of his rope. There are videos of him talking about how close it is coming for them to leave, and he really gets emotional and says that he basically is tired of being on this planet, he doesn't want to be here anymore, etc. Then he goes on to say that the door to Heaven's Gate is open and, quote, if you follow me, if you believe in me, if you do as that exactly as I say, then you'll get there, you will not know death. And the group isn't blind to the outside opinions of them. They know that people talk, they know that people think they're weird, but none of them really minded because they all felt like they were doing what was right. There's another video of Marshall where he basically says, that's fine, if they want to call us a cult, maybe we are, 
but we are the cult of cults. And I wonder if that had anything to do with some of the things that Marshall told the members. Um, a few years earlier, in 1993, the incident at Waco happened. A uh, quick summary. There was a cult that had been built, or that built a compound in Waco, Texas, called the Branch Davidians. And they were a cult that was run by a man named David Koresh, who also thought he was Jesus. And he thought that he was writing scriptures and had gained a following of people who left their lives behind to join him. However, unlike Heaven's Gate, the Branch Davidians had kids on their compound. It's a very long and heartbreaking story, but eventually the Branch Davidians were accused of stockpiling weapons, weapons and things escalated. This resulted in a huge standoff between the cult and law enforcement, and eventually a fire was started on the compound that killed 76 people, including 25 children. It was awful and tragic and really freaked people out and got everyone very worried about cult activity. And when this happened, a lot of the family members of Heaven's Gate were terrified that something like this could happen to their loved ones. This sparked something in Marshall, and he told the group that they might find themselves in a similar situation. And basically, he was trying to come up with a way for them to end their own lives by ending up in another standoff with law enforcement. Like I said, he was looking for a way out, and he was looking for a way for them to all die together. Nothing ever came of this, but it was definitely something that he talked about, like maybe we should just start stockpiling weapons and start something. Um, however, he didn't end up needing to do that because he came up with a new exit strategy. In December of 1996, the group celebrated Christmas all together and had a big Christmas party and like a talent show where they sang and danced and people did like little magic tricks and things and they exchanged gifts. Again, they filmed everything. So there is hours and hours and hours of them doing all of this stuff that's like a big family home movie. So they had Christmas and then over the next couple of months, they traveled a bunch and basically went on family vacations together. They went to SeaWorld, they visited Oregon to see where Marshall and Bonnie supposedly had their revelation about the UFO coming to take them away, they visited Mexico, for real this time, and they went to Las Vegas. They were doing all of these things in preparation to leave the Earth and basically going and, like, visiting their last favorite places before it was time for them to leave. At the end of 1996, they uploaded a ton of stuff to their website, heavensgate.com, which, by the way, is still accessible. Uh, the homepage says, quote, and this is still to this day. It's been up since the 90s. Red alert. The Hillbop Comet brings closure to Heaven's Gate. As was promised, the keys to Heaven's Gate are here again in T and Doe, the UFO 2, as they were in Jesus and the Father 2,000 years ago. Um, and then it goes on to say, Whether Hillbop has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously very significant to us at Heaven's Gate. The joy is that our oldest member in the evolutionary level above human the kingdom of heaven, has made it clear to us that the Hale-Bopp's approach is the marker we've been waiting for. The time for the arrival of the spacecraft from the level above human to take us home to, quote, their world in the literal heavens. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth finally coming to conclusion. Quote, graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. And remember, T and Doe are Bonnie and Marshall's names in the group. Um, if you study the material on this website, you will hopefully understand our joy and what our purpose here on Earth has been. You may even find your, quote, boarding pass to leave with us during this brief, quote, window. <laughs> we are very thankful that we have been recipients of this opportunity to prepare for membership in their kingdom and to experience their boundless caring and nurturing. The whole website goes into details about their beliefs and all of Bonnie and Marshall's teachings. They gave an option for people to purchase videotapes and talked about all of the um, Heaven's Gate recorded things, basically. Videotape 1 is called Last Chance to Evacuate the Earth Before It Is Recycled. Videotape 2 is called Planet Earth is About to Be Recycled. Your Only Chance to Survive, Leave With Us. And then they have a book they published called How and When Heaven's Gate May Be Entered. They all knew that they were going to die soon, but they fully believed Marshall's ideas that they weren't actually dying. They were just exiting their human vehicles to go get on a UFO. These people were brainwashed. Some of them had been there since day one, they spent every moment of every day for 22 years committed to learning and following Marshall's every word. So by this point, the idea that they'd have to kill themselves was nothing weird or scary to them because they believed they were being guided by an alien onto UFOs. They 100% trusted Marshall, who was claiming basically that he was a prophet, 
or that he was Jesus or an alien or whichever he chose to be that day. And these people were not stupid. They weren't crazy. They just fell under Marshall's spell and they trusted him completely. They felt certain things when they were in this group. They had these certain experiences that led them to believe that it was like spiritual and it was above their human bodies and it all made sense to them. On March 20th, 1997, the group filmed their exit interviews. And each member sat down and talked to the camera about what they were doing and where they were going. It's heartbreaking because every single one of them are so calm and even, like, excited for what they think is coming next. One of the members says how excited they are to take this set of clothes off and put on a new clean set in a new vibration, referring to leaving their earthly body. They talk about how they wish more people were joining them and that they wish people would understand that they were doing the right thing. Uh, it's a little hard to watch. Some people talk about how they were, they know that they're hurting their loved ones by doing what they're doing, but they genuinely feel like this is what's right and they're happy to be doing it. One member said, quote, I wish people could understand how much we know this is real. This is not a fantasy. Some of them get very emotional because they are so positive and so sure of the story Marshall has told them. There are members who say that they have done their best to uh, prove to their oldest members, aka Marshall and Bonnie, that they are worthy of this trip. They talk about how excited they are to see Bonnie, who they believe has been talking to Marshall from Heaven's Gate this whole time. And I'll be honest, I had a really hard time watching the exit interviews. Um, I just can't imagine how difficult it must have been for the family and friends of these people to watch. None of them are nervous. None of them are hesitant at all because Marshall has gotten into their heads and convinced them of something that sounds to us outrageous. But to them, they're like, no, this is my older member. He would never lead me down the wrong path. It's awful, but that's how cults work, right? You have to follow your leader to a T and not ask any questions for fear of not being faithful enough. It's just crazy what people can convince themselves of when they have a leader that has convinced them that they have this higher power and that the members are so special and important and better than the rest of the planet. But that's exactly what Marshall did. At this time, um, the group was living in a big mansion that they called the Monastery in Rancho Santa Fe, California. They were paying $7,000 in rent each month and they paid for this by starting a website design company. There were certain members of the group who were very tech savvy and worked with a lot of clients building websites and that's where the bulk of their money came from. I assume it was going pretty well and they were very successful to pay a $7,000 rent and cover the cost of living for 39 people. At some point in the previous months, they all purchased um, alien abduction insurance that would pay out up to $1 million per person. Alien abduction insurance, it's really a thing. Um, according to a quick invest Google, because I was like, no way, way. <laughs> you can have something called niche insurance that covers something really, really, really specific. And apparently Heaven's Gate was able to get insurance that would cover abduction, impregnation, or death by aliens. I'm uncomfy. Okay. <laughs> um, on March 22nd, uh, 1997, they began what they called the exit in which 39 members committed a mass suicide. In preparation for their deaths, each member checked out in their logbook. Uh, they always checked in and out when they left the house. They each wrote down their name, the time they left, and then the time slot they normally would fill out when they got back home. Each of them instead wrote never or a question mark. Some of them wrote things like Os Olivia's to baby or just bye. They all put on their matching uniforms, which was identical black shirts and black sweatpants and a pair of black and white Nike decades. They each wore a patch that said Heaven's Gate Away Team, which was a nod to one of their absolute favorite sci-fi shows, Star Trek. And in Star Trek, there's a team that goes and explores planets and other spacecrafts and then returns back to their main spaceship. The members of Heaven's Gate looked at themselves as the Away Team, exploring Earth and then being beamed back up to their spacecraft, aka the Hellbot Comet, aka the Next Level. Um, each person had a $5 bill and three quarters in their pocket, which was the standard rule when you left the house. On March 26, 1997, a man named Rio D'Angelo received a package in the mail from Heaven's Gate. Rio was a former member who had recently left the group, and in this package he found two videotapes, one labeled Doe's Final Exit and the other labeled Farewell Messages. There was also a letter that said, we have exited our vehicles just as we had entered them. Rio knew really quickly what happened, and he was able to get a ride from his friend to the Heaven's Gate mansion. Rio hopped a fence and found that the back door was intentionally left unlocked, and then he went inside, and he found all 39 of the Heaven's Gate members dead. 
Rio called 911 and officers quickly arrived. Inside the house, 21 women and 18 men between the ages of 26 and 72 were all found in the exact same position. They, again, kept a very, very specific logbook of how this was supposed to happen and what they did. So Marshall had split them into three groups of 15, 15, and 9. The groups were supposed to help each other through these um, suicides. Each member took a phenobarbital mixed with applesauce or pudding and then washed it down with vodka. Then a plastic bag was... Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words because it's just really upsetting. (laughs) I've tried to read it three times now and I can't get it. Um, So a plastic bag was then placed over their heads and once they were dead, the bag was removed from their heads and the other members laid them on top of their each of their beds and um, covered their top halves with a purple cloth. Marshall was in, I think, the second group, um, so he was not the last one to go, but the final two members were found um, laying down with their bags still on their heads, which is just awful and horrible, and the whole thing is so terrible and such an awful way to die. Um, I think I read somewhere that basically some of the people who took the phenobarbital because they were trying to overdose on the phenobarbital and the plastic bag was just kind of supposed to help speed things along, I think. But I think in later autopsies, there were a lot of people who did not have enough phenobarbital to be an overdose. And so they ended up dying just from strangulation, which I think sounds awful. And, um, I just, I don't know. I can't. Okay. (laughs) Moving on. I can't talk about this anymore. Something, um, I mentioned that each member of the group was wearing was those Nike Decades, which were actually discontinued out of respect after the mass suicide, which I think is really good. Nike doesn't need to make money off people buying these after a horrible tragedy. Um, But you know, people would want to keep them as a creepy souvenir. And I did a quick search and there are people selling these vintage Nike Decades for like seven grand. So that's a yikes. As you can imagine... It was a media circus, and the reporters swooped in like vultures, yelling about it before anyone even had time to figure out who these people exactly were and contact their family and loved ones and let them know what happened. Multiple family members learned about the death on the news or heard from other people who called them saying that they saw this on the news and being like, was this your child, sister, mom, etc. There were people who were terrified that their loved ones were involved in this group that they hadn't seen in decades. And for a lot of these people, they hadn't heard from their loved ones in years. And um, Terry Nettles, who is Bonnie's daughter, was horrified when she found out what happened. She said that her mom would have never led the group down that path, but Marshall was so obsessed with his own ideas that when he took things over, they just took this awful turn. Watching the family members of these people talk about the devastation they felt because of what Marshall convinced these people to do is just heartbreaking. It's awful. So... Here's the problem, and um, this is why I wanted to make it very clear that I'm not making fun of or, like, making light of what happened to these people. Sure, for a minute, everyone was shocked and sad and upset, but it very, very quickly turned into a mockery. Um, These people were not stupid. (laughs) They were not crazy. Again, they had been convinced and promised over 22 years that they were so special, that they had been chosen, that they were important. And in my opinion, they were brainwashed, but that doesn't make them stupid and it doesn't give anyone permission to make fun of what they, what happened to them in the end. Um, As if I needed another reason to think Conan O'Brien is the worst. Sorry if you're a fan. I just can't with that guy. He makes me so mad. Um, So he made jokes about Heaven's Gate on his show and Saturday Night Live didn't waste any time dressing Will Ferrell up as Marshall and doing this whole stupid skit, making fun of the group and making fun of the castrations and listen... I understand that the things Marshall and the group believed were wild and outlandish, and some of the things that they did were kind of nuts. But in my opinion, the issue is that these jokes were being made about the mass suicide and the deaths of these people. And I hope I'm making sense here because I don't want to sound like a hypocrite because you know I roll my eyes at the idea of someone coming forward and being like, hey everyone, it's me, Jesus, because that's ridiculous. But someone wanting to start their own religion or having these, like, things that seem crazy to believe in and crazy rules, etc., that's fine. Just because I don't want to believe the same things as you, that's fine. Do your thing. Again, be weird. That's great. But to turn it into something where people have to die for your thing and for this fantasy that was made up by a cult leader is tragic and awful, and that part, it's not funny, and there's no way that it can be funny, in my opinion. Don't yell at me. 
Um, these people weren't crazy. They were just vulnerable, and they found themselves entranced by someone who claimed to know all the answers to all their questions. Especially, imagine if that was your mom, or your sister, or your cousin, or your friend, and these people are just openly making fun of their deaths. I just can't. I just don't like that. Uh, anyways, it just feels icky to me. Rant over. Moving forward. So, unfortunately, even though there were members who had left the group, there were a handful who still believed, um, and they just felt like maybe they weren't supposed to be in the group at that time. And, unfortunately, there were a few of those members who actually ended up taking their own lives in the hopes of joining the rest of Heaven's Gate. The tragedy of Heaven's Gate is still the largest mass suicide in U.S. The story of Heaven's Gate is sad and tragic, and I wish that it would help people to see that People who come forward asking you to give up everything because they claim to have this higher power or this special knowledge or whatever are not the kind of people you should be following, but honestly, we know that this still happens. Look at the craziness of Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow. Sure, they didn't have a huge following, but they did have a little miniature cult. They had a group of very, very faithful members, and they committed murder because they thought that they had answers to life's eternal question. And if they hadn't gotten caught, or maybe if things hadn't played out as quickly as they did, who knows what would have happened with those two. Um, there was also another cult that was found out about earlier this year where a woman who was, again, claiming to be a god, um, called the Love Has Won cult, was making people abandon their lives and follow her exactly words, blah, blah, blah. So this woman, whose name was Amy Carlson, somehow convinced a group of people to follow her, and they all moved into this house. I want to say it was in Arizona. I can't remember exactly. But... Um, this ended really badly for a lot of those members. If you want me to talk more about that particular situation, let me know. Um, the people who end up following these outrageous leaders are not stupid and they're not crazy. I know I've said that 50 times, but I think that sometimes people have a really easy time writing off people who join cults or whatever by just being like, well, they're dumb. I would never fall for something like that. But it's like, no, people fall for stuff all the time. Smart, intelligent, brilliant people end up in very, very weird situations when the wrong kind of crazy finds them. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Um, okay. If you want to know more about that, um, the Love Has One cult, let me know. I could probably do a whole episode on it because it was a pretty insane story that happened just barely. So, let me know. And, uh, with that, we have reached the end of this long episode. Thank you for sticking it out. Thank you for being here. I hope that this made you think about cults a little differently, and I highly, highly recommend, if you're looking for something to watch, watch the HBO docuseries called Cult of Cults. It was amazingly done one of the best documentaries I've seen. So if you liked this episode, make sure that you subscribe. And if you're feeling generous, leave me a review. I can't thank you enough for your support on this little podcast of mine. And I really enjoy researching and uh, talking about these things. So I'm glad that you like listening to me do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, until next time. Goodbye.